700 years before the arrival of Jesus, Isaiah prophesied about the Lord's servant who was going to come and how he was going to be successful in bringing salvation to the ends of the earth, that he would bear the arm of the Lord, reveal God himself, that he would be raised up and highly exalted. And yet through his success to be able to bring salvation, reveal the arm of the Lord, there would be an immense amount of suffering. We saw last week in Isaiah 52 from verse 13 to Isaiah 53 verse 1 this description about the successful servant who was going to be appalling in many ways. Appalling because of what he would endure that would be a stumbling block to many. And he was appalling because of the covenant that he would create even with the Gentiles and bringing them to cleansing and covenant so that they could also receive salvation. Isaiah then poses the rhetorical question in Isaiah 53 and verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And the answer to that rhetorical question is no one. And that's what this next section looks at in this description of the suffering servant is that this verse now is a hinge as it describes previously why they are rejecting him. And now it's going to describe much of the servant's rejection. It's going to describe for us with some detail what was going to happen to the Lord's servant who was coming to save the world from their sins. You'll notice the description begins in verse two. Then as we continue in our study of crushed for our iniquities, we see verse two, for he grew up before him like a young plant. We have an interesting start to this and saying everybody is rejecting him. Who has believed the message that he has heard from us? Who is believing in the arm of the Lord that has been revealed? Well, no one has. But even though no one is believing the message, this is not indicative of his relationship with God. Notice it begins with, he grew up before him. The servant grows up before the Lord, indicating that the Lord is watching over what is happening and that they are in close relationship together. So he grows up before him, not outside of him, but in his very sight. But the description is so fascinating because it is he grew up before him like a young plant. And this already then begins to indicate the humble beginnings of the arrival of the servant. That the servant is going to come and he's not going to come in a way that you would expect the king of kings and lord of lords to come. He is going to come with very humble beginnings, beginnings that you would not expect for royalty. Not what you would expect for someone who is God himself who has come in the flesh. In fact, his beginnings are not only humble, but they are considered contemptible by the world at that time. You will see like in the text, like over in the Gospel of John, like chapter 7 and verse 41 and chapter 7 and verse 52, that by Jesus coming from Galilee, that that was something that he was held in contempt for. Uh, Galilee is is not something that you said, well, that's a great place to be from, nor was it held in any regard whatsoever. And so for him to come from Galilee, you even had the religious leaders saying, hey, look through the scriptures and see if you can find that the savior of the world would come from Galilee. 
In fact, even of his own disciples, as Jesus is calling them, as John 1 records for us, when told that they'd found this one from Nazareth, they said, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? Contemptible beginnings, even where he comes from, would cause people to reject him. His humble beginnings, that he does not match up with what the world expected him to be as the Savior who comes revealing the arm and salvation of our God. And so it begins, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. The the root imagery not only in parallel with a young plant, but Isaiah earlier in Isaiah chapter 11 has used the root image to speak of the Messiah. And Isaiah comes back to that as God tries to remind us that he's not just talking about any old servant. He's not talking about Cyrus's servant who's going to let the people go from the Babylonian captivity. He is talking about the Messiah himself. And many of the prophets use this imagery of a root or a branch that would come. And so the root image is to just designate, I'm talking about the Christ. I am talking about the Messiah who is coming to save. He was a like a root that is out of dry ground. Now Isaiah has pictured this many, many times. What Isaiah has pictured is that this is much more about the spiritual condition of Israel. Like in Isaiah chapter 32 and many other places in Isaiah, you'll see this picture that because the people are in rebellion to God and they are steeped in their sins, they are being judged and taken away into captivity and therefore the blessings of God have been cut off. The people have broken the covenant with God, and so they are dealing with those consequences. And so it is described as being in a wilderness or being in a dry ground. They are spiritually dry, spiritually parched until the spirit comes who will pour out blessings upon them where there will be great restoration. Then as God is coming back to his people, restoring the relationship, restoring the blessings and restoring the covenant. It is why you have a prophecy that we know very well that Isaiah gives us, that the New Testament quotes for us, when it speaks of John the baptizer, that he is a voice in the wilderness crying out. And that was not merely just location geographically. But it is speaking to the spiritual condition of the nation. Here John will come when they are spiritually separated from God and they are in their spiritual darkness. There is going to be a voice crying out to repent, to turn their ways, to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And so here Isaiah prophesies that idea again, is that when the Messiah arrives, when the root shows up, it's not going to be in fertile lands. It's not going to be in a time of spiritual goodness. It's going to be in dry ground when the people need it the most. And then verse 2, three times he had no form or majesty that we should look at him And no beauty that we should desire him. Three different ways to indicate he's not going to look like what you think he'll look like to be the king. There's nothing that is going to be about the Messiah, the Christ, when he arrives, the servant of the Lord who brings salvation. There will be nothing about him 
that you will look at him and you will go, oh, well, clearly he's the one. Let's all follow him. Therefore, every movie and TV show you've ever seen is wrong. (laughs) Because in every movie and TV show, isn't Jesus always the best looking guy on the screen? Right? And this says no. This says his looks are going to be average. Nothing about him that you would go, oh, well, he's the one to follow. No light hanging over him everywhere he goes. No angels flying around him that everybody's going to know. He's going to look like everybody else. There is nothing distinguishable about him in the slightest. In his appearance, in his beauty, in his form whatsoever. He doesn't look like a king. He is not like a king Saul that people go, well, he's definitely the one. He's head and shoulders above the rest will follow him. He just blends in with the crowd. Nothing about him that we would say he's a king to follow, that we would even begin to desire him is what Isaiah says. He's going to look just like everybody else, which should just be shocking to us. Because what you have then is God in the flesh looking average. I mean, that is just a shocking concept. All majesty and glory belongs to our Lord. And he takes on the form of humanity in which you wouldn't see any of that. Not even in good looks. Not even in being, you know, six foot five and head above shoulder above the rest. Nothing. Nothing about him that we should desire him. Not in his form, not in his beauty, nothing that we would see who he truly is, that we should even want to look at him or desire him or consider him. This begins to describe the amazing sacrifice of our Lord and first setting aside all that he deserves in terms of the majesty and glory of God and who he is and being willing to show himself in a way that made him no different than any other human being who walked the earth. He looked just like everybody else and nothing set him apart in terms of what you would perceive in him with your eyes looking at the physical flesh. And then in verse 3, the reception that he receives is described. Remember what Isaiah has told us. This is the salvation of our God. This is the arm of the Lord being revealed. This is the servant of the Lord. This is the one who has come to save. This is the one who we have been waiting for to help us so that we can be reconciled to God, that we might have peace with God. This is the one that God sends to be our Lord and Savior. And verse 3 tells us the reaction and the reception of the world. Verse 3, he was despised. And rejected by men. He was held in contempt. He was not considered worthy of anything. That he was despicable and revolting to us in every way. Instead of following the servant for who he is. And the work that he had come to do. You get a description there in the middle of verse 3. And as one from whom men hide their faces. Didn't even want to be with him. 
shunned him, rejected him, did not see him for who he was. And so he was despised by his own creation. He was rejected and forsaken by his own creation. And I think when you think about this situation, you think about this description that's given of our Lord. It is again shocking that Jesus volunteers for this. God in the flesh, willing to be rejected, willing to be despised, willing to come in such a way so that people would rather not see Him for who He is, but instead would offer mistreatment to Him instead. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, verse 3, and acquainted with grief. When we read Man of Sorrows, we have a song that reads to Man of Sorrows, what a name. And I think it's important for us to recognize this is not describing the emotional state of the servant. This is not saying that, well, he went around very sad. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's very, very sad. That's not even what the Hebrew word means at all. It is a picture of suffering and pain is what these words get at. Is that he is familiar with suffering. He is acquainted with pain and sickness. He is like us. He experiences those kinds of things. And so in describing the servant of the Lord who is revealing the salvation of our God, not only does he not look different, he is going to experience things just like us. He will experience pain and suffering though he is the servant of the Lord. He is not going to be immune to that. He's not going to be invincible to sickness, sorrow, pain, illness, grief. But we'll experience all of those things. It is one of the things that the writer of Hebrews puts his finger on that is so powerful and a reminder to us that he endured the same things that we endure and is tested in the same ways that we are tested. He experienced the same things. He is not immune in the slightest. And here Isaiah pictures that and says he is going to experience rejection and pain and suffering and be shunned and go through all of these different things so much so that though he is sent by God to save the world, the end of verse 3, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is perhaps the the worst of all is here is God in the flesh and we considered him insignificant in every way. We did not value him for who he was. How much esteem should he have received when you think about this declaration right here? Think about the glory and honor that should have come from his creation at his arrival. And this says when he comes to his creation, here's what the creation will do. They will despise him. They will reject him. They will put him through pain and suffering. And they will not value him at all. In fact, they will consider him insignificant. In fact, they will shun him. They will be as if they turn their faces from him. They will want nothing to do with him. The gospel accounts reflect that. Reflect all that he endured. Here is God in the flesh coming to his creation to save. And we did not consider him worthy of that. The servant of the Lord who comes to bring peace and joy, salvation, redemption. Was rejected by people and deemed insignificant. 
And that's what then transitions as we're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 4 through 6 is looking at what the servant does now and, and what he's going to do for us and what the people do in regards to that. Verse 4, he has surely borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Let's, let's deal with that for a, a moment. Consider what's being told to, hear, told to us here. Verse 4, griefs and sorrows. Same Hebrew words that were back in verse 3 when it said man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Same words. So again, we're talking about pain, sickness, illness, suffering. That's what this is talking about. So surely he has borne our pains, our sufferings, our illnesses, our sicknesses is what this is, what this is talking about. He carried our sicknesses, our pains. Now this is an important picture and I want to stop here for a minute because we need to drill down on this word right here when it says that he bore our sorrows or he bore our sicknesses and suffering to think about exactly what this is telling us. I want us to observe just a couple of things here as we think about what this is trying to say about the work of Christ. I'm going to kind of just walk you through logically what this would mean to say, well, he bore our sorrows, he bore our suffering, he bore our pain. Is the first thing is we'll notice, and we'll get to Matthew in just a minute, that this isn't speaking of some kind of substitutionary concept. It's not talking about, well, uh, he had pain in our place. That's not what Isaiah is looking at. In fact, you can notice the Hebrew parallelism even in your English translation. Notice that griefs and sorrows are in parallel in verse 4. And notice born and carried are also in parallel. That's what this word actually means. And that's why even some translations are willing to describe it this way. But he lifted up our illnesses and carried our pain is what the New English translation reads and some others do similarly. That he carried our pain or lifted up our pain or took it away. And that's that's what the Hebrew word literally means. And it's the way we often use that word. We talk about bearing something like if a donkey were to bear something, what is it doing? It's carrying That's what it's doing, and that's what this imagery represents. And we even use it in the scriptures, like in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says, I want you to bear one another's burdens. What are you doing? Carrying. That's all this concept means. And if you go to sleep for the next 15 minutes, if there's one thing I would beg you to have in your mind... When you read about what the servant does, because it's going to talk about him bearing all kinds of things. Here we're talking about he bears pain. You're talking about bearing sins. We're going to read about all these things. Please have in your mind, when you're bearing something, you're carrying it. That's what the Hebrew word means. That's what the parallelism of the text means. And it's how we even use it. And he's going to use it even again in verse 6 as well to signify this very imagery. What he comes to do is he is lifting up our pains. He is lifting up or carrying our suffering. He is carrying the pains and carrying these difficulties. Which is really then how that's used over in Matthew chapter 8. This is quoted in perhaps a really surprising way maybe. Over in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, speaking of Jesus, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Here's Jesus. He's doing miracles. He's casting out unclean spirits. He's healing the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 
You see it right there. What did that mean when it says there, well, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases? What's happening when He bears them? He's taking their illnesses away from them, right? They have unclean spirits, and He takes them away. They have illnesses that He's doing these miracles. He's healing them. He's taking them away. Please keep that in your mind. Did that mean that he had those sicknesses now? No. Did that mean now he had the unclean spirits now? No. No. It just means he took them away. He carried them away from us. And here is Matthew saying, that's what that was referring to when Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah said he's going to come and he's going to take away our sicknesses. He's going to show himself to be the Messiah. And that he comes and deals with pain and suffering and illnesses. He's going to do all those things. And of course, Isaiah's picturing something even greater, that it wouldn't just be physical sicknesses and physical suffering, but the, our greatest need of all, that our spiritual illness, as the text is going to go on to describe. Him bearing our griefs, bearing our sorrows, bearing our sins, bearing our illnesses, pains, and suffering is a picture of He has come to take them away. He is carrying these things away from us, which is exactly what we needed. This is exactly what we had longed for, is we need one to come and take these things away from us. And Jesus is the solution. He does not take these things on Himself or in Himself. He took these things away. He carries them as we needed Him to do. And now that leads to something amazing. Look at verse 4 again. Isaiah 53, verse 4. So He's borne our griefs, our pains, our sicknesses. He's carried our sorrows. But notice what happens. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He comes to deal with sin. He comes and shows that He is the servant of God. He goes around healing people and forgiving sins. And the reaction of everybody is He is struck down by God. He is afflicted by God. He is beaten by God. He is stricken by God. Rather than seeing Him for who He is, as the servant of the Lord, everybody said... He's not from God. He's rejected by God. He is not worthy of God. And please consider that that is what those mocking that was going around as Jesus is on the cross. That's what the mocking all centered around. For example, Matthew 27, verse 43, when they said, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Now underline this. If he desires him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if God cares about him. If God desires him. You see what they're doing? 
We considered him rejected of God, stricken by God, struck down by God. He is sent by God to save the world. And we said, he's not from God at all. He's punished by God. He's rejected by God. He's afflicted by God. If God actually desires him, he'd do something about this cross scene. But we know he is rejected of God because of the way that he dies on the cross. And so everybody said he's not the Christ. He's not the servant of the Lord. He's not the son of God. People thought he was dying for his own sins. That's what they are speaking about. If God desired him. If he were innocent, this wouldn't be happening to him. And he is condemned of God is what they believed. And so what a contrast is made that verse four says he comes and carries the pain and carries the sorrows and carries the suffering. And our response to him coming to carry those things is to consider him and esteem him and value him as struck down and cut off from God. Rather than honoring him and praising him for who he is. We said he was unworthy of our praise altogether. But Isaiah wants to make sure that we don't think that. Again, this is all 700 years before Jesus arrives. And he wants to make sure we don't think that. So as you connect this together... Get that five out of the way in your Bible there, that verse number. Just think about this connection. We esteemed him as stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We saw him as punished by God. He's separated from God. But, verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions. It wasn't for his actions. He's not going through this because of his own actions. He's not cut off from God because of something he did. And so Isaiah wants to make it very clear. It is for us what we did. He is wounded and slain for our rebellion. In fact, verse five, some translations do that. That's the most literal way to read that. He was wounded for our rebellion. It is our sins. It is our law breaking. It is our rebellion that causes him to be crushed. I grew up with the New King James that reads reads bruised there. That's not strong enough. Uh, The word literally means to dash into pieces. And so most translations read he was crushed. And that is right. He is crushed for our iniquities. He's wounded because of our rebellion. Not because of what he has done. But look at the effect of it. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. This is the most amazing thing. We are the ones in rebellion. We are the ones who transgressed. We are the ones who did not esteem him. We rejected him. We did not see him as worthy of any significance. We did not value him as the servant of God. And so we crucify him, and yet it says this was going to be designed by God to bring us peace. 
that our rebellion has caused us to be separated from God. We cannot have a relationship with God at all. Our sins are in the way. And there is no solution on our end to be able to solve that. There is no way for us to return to relationship with God. We have severed it for God is a holy God. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no sin. He cannot dwell with wickedness in the slightest. And every single one of us have broken God's law and stand in rebellion to God's law. And so God's solution is the servant who will be crushed for our transgressions, who will be wounded and slain for our rebellion. And it says there so amazingly in verse 5, that brought us peace. This activity of the servant is the means by which we are able to have peace with God. There's nothing that we could do to institute this peace. We stood as enemies of God. We stood in rebellion to God. We are worthy of the wrath of God for all that we had ever done. And instead of our Lord justly pouring out wrath upon us as we deserve... Our Lord instead sends the servant. And through the suffering that he experiences, not because of his own sins, we are brought to peace. And now we can have relationship with God again. Notice the parallelism again in verse 5. And with his stripes we're healed. Now there is the spiritual healing that we need. Now we have hope again. Our rebellion has put us away from God. God acts on our behalf and makes reconciliation possible, brings peace to us and heals us of our sins, heals us of the wounds of sin, heals us from all that we've done. And again, the writer wants to make sure that we dare not think that this was anything that Jesus had done to deserve this. Notice verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. He wants to emphasize the problem was us. The problem is not the one who was hanging on the cross as the people mocked him and said that it was. Let the Lord save him if he desires him. The problem was not with the servant. The problem was with us. And notice how Isaiah wants to emphasize that in three different ways. Notice the all, all of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, each of us. It was not the servant that turned away from the path of God. It was us. And I want us to recognize this language here of verse 6 is not saying that that's by accident. 
We weren't just like a bunch of dumb animals just kind of wandering around, you know. We just kind of went off the path. This is a decisive choice. We went our own way. We saw God's way. Here's the path we're supposed to go. And all of us, like sheep, everyone said, I'm going my path. I will not go that path. And there's not a single person who did not do that. Here's Isaiah saying it. Before it even happened. Here's what people are going to do. Every single one will not go that path. But I want you to know that's not what the servant did. The servant did go the path of the Lord. But we all like sheep went astray. We are the ones who decided God's way is not good enough. I don't like his path. My way's better. I want to live how I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to be king of my life. Every single person did it. All of us. Isaiah drives it home. And God's solution to that in verse 6 is, And so the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And notice it's the imagery again of carrying sins. There's this burden carrying image again. The Lord places on him to carry the sins away. Lays on him the iniquity of us all. That's how God's going to deal with it. Is he sends a servant who's come to save the world, to be the revelation of the arm of the Lord, to show all power and strength and is performing miracles, casting out demons, healing his own creation of their diseases and illnesses and sicknesses. And we said, we don't want that. We don't like it. We want to go our own path. And God said, fine, I'll save you. And I will lay on him the iniquity of us all, of us all so that we can be saved. Our guilt caused the suffering. And it's through that suffering our sins could be carried away. So that now we could have peace with God and that we could be healed. Even though we don't deserve a bit of what God just did. Who would do that for a bunch of rebels? Who would do that for a bunch of lawbreakers and transgressors? But God and his love for us sends the servant to deal with this kind of mistreatment. To be rejected by the world. To come and die for sins. For people who said, I don't want to be with God. I don't care about God. I want to do what I want to do. That every single one of us has done and declared. And it's made a way possible for all of us to come back. He sends the servant so that we would open our eyes and recognize the path that we are on is the path of destruction. It is the path of judgment. And the servant was sent to open our eyes to reveal the salvation of God. To turn away from those sins and follow the Lord your God. Peter said it this way as he quoted and referenced this very text. And we'll end with this. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, Peter writes, 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Notice the emphasis that he's going to make from Isaiah. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Here he is. The one who will carry our sins, the one who will bear those sins. He comes in the form of the flesh and suffers for sins to take them away from us so that we can be set free. In fact, notice how Peter says it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Reading Isaiah is to cause us to die to sin and live for God. By his wounds you have been healed. You were strained like sheep. All of us have gone aside like sheep, Isaiah said. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We serve a great shepherd who takes back his wandering sheep back into his fold if you'll listen to his voice. If you'll hear his words this morning of peace, healing, and reconciliation. Will you come to the shepherd? Will you come to Jesus who died for your sins? The one who has brought you peace, who suffered not for his own, Not for what he did, but for all that we did. Will you die to sin and live for righteousness? I pray that that will motivate you today. I pray that it will motivate you tomorrow and motivate you through this week and through your life. Look at the cross. See the suffering servant. He did it for you. That's how much he loves you. In the rebellion, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. If you have not done that, today's the opportunity. Your decision today, turn away from your sins, confess Jesus to be the Son of God, and be immersed in water. Have your sins washed away. Will you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?